Rod Collins is a leading expert and thought leader on the self-managed organization and the future of business. He is a regular blog contributor on Substack, where he explores how technological innovations continue to transform the rules of how successful businesses work. He is also the author of Wiki Management, a revolutionary new model for a rapidly changing and collaborative world, which highlights the innovative tools and practices used by a new breed of business leaders to sustain extraordinary performance in a world reshaped by digital disruption. Rod is the former Chief Operating Executive of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program, one of the nation's largest and most successful business alliances. Under his leadership, the business experience, its greatest five-year growth period in its 60-year history. Please welcome Rod Collins. Welcome, everybody, to Money 911, where we talk about health, wealth, and peace of mind and safe money. And I'm really honored. You heard my fabulous bio about Rod. I want to welcome you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Chris, great to be with you. It's fabulous. You know, I always ask my guests to, to go ahead, give me a title like we're in a mastermind. And your title is nobody smarter than anybody, right? Everybody. Nobody smarter than everybody. Everybody. Nobody smarter yes. than everybody. Everybody. Right. That just happens to be a new book you're writing, right? Right. It should be published sometime this year. The manuscript is complete and my agent is shopping it around. Perfect. So one way or the other, it's going to be published this year. Yeah. I like that title. Tell me why, what, what brought you to that title? What's up? About that? Well, the book focuses on three companies, all of whom have been around for decades, all of whom went from startups to market leaders, all of whom are highly profitable and none of whom have any bosses. And one of the three companies has 11,000 people in 30 countries around the world. They're a $3 billion enterprise, have made a profit in every year of their existence. And most people on this, uh, uh, on this podcast know about them. They're the makers of Gore-Tex, which is a company known as W.L. Gore and Associates. And in 1958, Bill Gore had this insight that there's a better way to manage a company. And all three of these are using that better way. And what the book highlights is there's two fundamental forms of management organization. And I think this is probably important for investors to keep in mind as we go forward, because in our rapidly changing world with escalating complexity, I would suggest to you that the dominant management model we have used for the last 150 years is not up to the task for managing accelerating change or escalating complexity, which is the well-known centralized top-down hierarchy. This alternative model is known as the self-managed peer-to-peer network. Mm -hmm. And as investors are looking for, uh, shall we say, management advantage, I would suggest they keep their eyes out for 
business leaders who are using this alternative model. So let me talk a little more specifically, and then we can get into some Q&A back and forth. But an organizational model has got to answer two fundamental questions. The first is, who decides? And the second is, how does power work? Those two questions are informed by the fundamental design principle of the organization. And so in the typical organization, the fundamental design principle is trust authority. And when you trust authority, what you do then is you leverage the intelligence of the elite few at the top of the organization. And the way power works is you give them the ability to command and control the work of others in the organization. And in that case, Power is a function of force. It's coercive power. It's legitimate coercive power. And what we're doing is creating a circumstance in which the vast majority of people and organizations feel powerless. So this is why Gallup continually finds that 70% of employees feel disengaged. What they're really saying is 70% of these highly intelligent people who are well-educated feel they have no power. Now, the alternative model, the self-managed peer-to-peer network, has a very different design principle. And its design principle is nobody is smarter than everybody. And who decides? Decisions are made not by individuals, but the self-managed peer-to-peer network continually leverages the collective intelligence of all participating. And it typically happens in the context of teams. So for example, A leadership team in a network, even though it may have a nominal CEO for purposes of of legal compliance, that CEO doesn't have unilateral authority. That CEO is a facilitative leader of a leadership team, and the team makes the decisions as a team, and no single person can veto that. And that type of structure permeates throughout the entire organization. Anyone can initiate a project. Anyone can decide how their time will be spent. Not everyone has money. Money has to be earned in the network. But with the freedom to process ideas, these types of organizations are more prone to be innovative. They are more prone to adapt to the market. They're more adaptive companies than the typical top-down hierarchy, which oftentimes wants to preserve yesterday's business or product model because the identities of the executives are tied to those. But most importantly, power works very differently in a network because it's not a function of force. It's a function of an entirely different dimension of power, and that is energy. And so in the network, you don't have coercive power, you have synergistic power. And the synergistic power emerges from the interaction of the people as they solve problems together And in networks, there are no powerless people. Everyone participates in the power of the organization. So let me just close this part out by giving an example that all our listeners will be familiar with. Have you ever wondered why we don't have airplane crashes anymore in the United States? When I first started traveling as a traveling employee back in the 70s, every time I got on a plane, I was very aware Will I be on one of the three to four plane crashes that will happen in the United States this year? Because that's what we averaged. But all that changed in the 1980s when all the airlines changed their management system in the cockpit from the top-down hierarchical structure to the self-managed peer-to-peer network. The captain was no longer a dictator. 
The captain was a facilitator. And all people in the cockpit, whether it's two or three members, are free to participate and solve problems together. The reason we don't have airplane crashes has more to do with the human management system in the cockpit than it has to do with improvements in the machines themselves. Why is that? Well, network management solves for two blind spots that plague all hierarchical organizations. The first is unconscious biases. When you give people the power to command and control others, to tell them to shut up and do what you're told, there is no mechanism in the organization for pointing out when the leaders are operating from inappropriate unconscious biases. In a network, any team member can point those biases out and they can work them through. The second blind spot is even more critical in a time of great change and escalating complexity, and it is unknown unknown. Hierarchies cannot uncover what they don't know they don't know. And oftentimes, that's what brings companies down. Look at Blockbuster. Blockbuster was a tremendously successful market leader, and it fell like, like, like a rock. Why? Because there's the worst decision in the history of that company was made by a single person in a 45-minute meeting. When the owners of Netflix came to uh, uh, the CEO of Blockbuster and said, we want to sell you, we want to sell ourselves to you for $50 million, and we want to start Blockbuster.com, a streaming service, the CEO laughed at them and said, streaming will never affect our industry. He had a clear unconscious bias. I'm sure there were people in Blockbuster who recognized streaming was coming, but there was no ability to bring that into the decision. And what did that cost Blockbuster? On the day they turned it down, they were a $6 billion company. And what was Netflix at the end of 2022? A $300 billion enterprise. They passed up a 50-fold growth opportunity because they had no correction for the uh, unconscious biases and they had no ability to uncover what they didn't know they didn't know which is how streaming would change an industry. So as investors look at managers, they need to be looking at them. Are unconscious blind spots able to wreak havoc in this company? Is this company good at discovering what it doesn't know that it doesn't know about where the world is going? Because the one thing we can be sure of, tomorrow is going to be very different from today. Wow, Rod, that, that's amazing. And that, that totally makes sense. The, the world of, of cooperation instead of competition and collaborative and, and everything is, like you said, you know, that totally makes sense because everything is changing so fast and the mindset that the leaders know. And, you know, as your tenure as a, a CEO of Blue Cross, Blue Shield, right? Blue Cross. I was, yeah, Blue I was the chief Shield. executive of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Federal employee, right? Yeah, so it was the insurance for all federal employees. When I left, it was a $19 billion operation, and it was okay. a business alliance of 39 companies. So we had to learn how to lead a network. And so we use some of these uh, uh, approaches in managing that particular network. Well, you had the most, they, the company experienced the greatest five year growth period while you were there. That's correct. And, and those were the strategies that you were using. Is that correct? Yeah. It was the model. We used the, model. the network model. And one of the things wow. I did there is because we worked in the context of a larger hierarchy, although we were able to bring the network right. there. But one right. of the things we developed, and this is something I do with companies who want to experience what it means to work in a network. 
I do one or two day collective intelligence workshops. And what I'll do is get a microcosm of the business in the room. And that usually takes maybe about 40 people to do that. And what it means is you have upper level executives and you have people close to customer service. You'll have customer service operators in the same meeting, okay? Because you want all elements of the business there. And when nobody's smarter than everybody, you I good ideas can come from anywhere. And so one of the things that happens in networks and happens in our collective intelligence workshop is a phenomenon known as serendipity. And serendipity is the ability to connect unusual things. And that's where a lot of innovation happens. You know, think of Steve Jobs. What did he do? He combined a phone with a portal to the internet with something that would connect to your music. He was just bringing unusual things together. And oftentimes that's your seeds of innovation. Hierarchies don't do that. They keep people in silos. And so if you're going to adapt, I mean, an important part with the key factor driving growth of companies in the future is not operational efficiency. It's the ability to rapidly adapt, adapt rather from product model to product model, because the life cycle of a product model today, unlike 50 years ago, is not 40 years. You'll be lucky if it's four or five years. Mm. And your next version of your product model may look very different from the current one. This is what Blockbuster could not do. It could not see a business model structure beyond DVDs. Kodak could not see a product model outside of film. And yet Kodak probably should have invented the iPhone because they invented the digital camera. And so if they had this ability to adapt, they certainly had the engineering technical talent. What the Kodak failed, not because they couldn't innovate, their technicians could, it's because their management was stuck in the past and didn't know how to adapt to the future. That is great. Uh, Stuck in the past, adapting to the future. I mean, that works for a corporation. It works for a person. And it should be working for this country. They really need it the most. I mean, that really makes sense, Ron. The digital disruption has reshaped the business landscape. Maybe I'm sure you can share some examples of how businesses have adopted, right? Like you just said, what Kodak didn't do. And what, what are some of the characteristics to, you know, to sustain extraordinary performance in the face of disruption? So look at a company like Netflix, okay? I mean, they first, at one point, they were in terrible financial shape and they tried to sell themselves to Blockbuster and that didn't work out. And so they went out and created a very different business model that was built around mailing DVDs. But while they're doing that, they were also building a streaming service that they knew would eventually put their initial product model out of business. And so what they recognize is they need to cannibalize themselves because somebody's going to do it. Why not me? And that's what our investors need to look for. What business leaders are saying, somebody's going to eat my lunch. Why not me? And what was the next thing Netflix did? They didn't just stick with streaming. They said, well, why can't we create the pictures and the films that we're going to show? And they began to get into film production. And so they're constantly looking at new and different product models. This is why a network is so important where everyone's powerful. Because in in a network, anyone has the ability to say, I'm going to come up with a new product. 
It may even put the products that we have now out of business and that's okay. All right. And if they can build the business case, if they can show that this is a viable product model, that's how they earn money. And in the context of a network, if, if everyone is powerful and no single person can kill a good idea or, or keep a bad idea alive, then what happens is, all right, we're going to abandon the product we've been using, do, doing as Netflix did with DVDs. Now we're going to go into streaming. And that was more lucrative. And that's the interesting thing. Oftentimes, if you're, if you're willing to adapt, if you're willing to cannibalize yourself, if you will, you go to a higher, shall we say, uh, financial point. Your, your revenues will be better. If you're certainly, if you're moving from atoms to bits, then you're not facing the same type of limiting factors that sometimes atoms have. So this is this mindset in, in, in the network of really business, but maintains competitive advantage is not operational efficiency. It is adaptability. Kodak was operationally efficient at film the day they died. Hmm. Didn't mean anything to them once the market moved on. And I think companies today, something that I'm seeing, which is a little disturbing, a number of our companies are out there are losing sight of their customers. They are losing sight of their customers and they are becoming internally focused to values perhaps their employees have that are not consistent with their customers. That doesn't make sense. And in some instances, it's not even consistent with their shareholders. And so I think that's something for investors to keep an eye on. Another thing about a network and a hierarchy is it changes the purpose of a business. The purpose of a business is not, and our investor audience might be surprised to hear this, it is not to create shareholder wealth. Now, I'm not saying shareholder wealth is not important. I think it is extremely important. But shareholder wealth is not the direct objective. It is the reward that companies get for fulfilling the real direct objective, which is this. The purpose of a company is to create value for customers. If you keep your eye on that, you will stay in touch with their values as they change, as they change with new technologies. And this is how, like Netflix, you'll adapt from DVDs to streaming to movies, move as the customers move, all right? If you are focused on shareholder value, you're focused on the financial statements, you may do accounting shenanigans, which may be legal, but still harmful. And you stay invested in yesterday's product models, trying to get as much out of those as you can. And in the long run, the shareholders don't don't get benefit from that. So keep your eye on the customer and you will continually keep your shareholders happy. The direct thing you can affect is customer value. It turns out shareholder value is an indirect variable, not a direct variable. Ooh, words of wisdom. You know, in a world where knowledge and information is is available, how can businesses effectively harness this and within their organizations and, and empower the teams to embrace these changes that drives the improvement and the innovation? Like you've been saying it, but this is just... This is amazing. It really is, to me, the vision of the future for how corporations and businesses should be. Well, the thing I would do, uh, especially for those who are business leaders of either small, medium, or large-sized enterprises, whatever it is, work in the context of teams Mm. and set up decision-making at the team level. 
And if you are the chief executive, have the courage to stop making unilateral decisions. Mm. Have the courage to trust your teams. Have the courage for them to push back on your thinking. This was something I had to learn to do when I put the network structure in. And I got to the point where I very, very clearly was comfortable with, I will never, never substitute my point of view for the collective intelligence of a diverse group of people who are free to express their opinions. Because I learned that nobody is smarter than everybody. If I can tap into that knowledge, I have an incredible competitive asset, which is why during the five years that I had the opportunity to be the chief executive using this model, we had the largest five-year growth period that business has ever had still to this day. Why? It had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with this network model. It was all of our people having processes that enabled us to tap into their collective intelligence that allowed us to create innovative products, increase market share. And I was always proud of the fact that we had two major health insurance products. And on one of them, there wasn't a single rate increase in the five years I was the chief executive. Wow. How many insurance products could maintain a consistent rate of five years? And we were able to do that with one of our two products. And so the collective intelligence of our staff helped us to design products that met customer value in ways that worked, uh, that were, you know, financially viable, both for them and for us. You know, this should be the prototype for every business. This is amazing. I mean, I've never heard it. You know, you, you're singing a beautiful song here. I really, really am enjoying it. The most untapped resource in a typical company is the collective intelligence of its own people. Ooh, right it's paid down. for. It's just money left on the table when you don't tap into it. That's brilliant. You got to blast that. That should go viral. That is so brilliant. It's so true. And it seems like what, you know, collaboration and innovation, they go hand in hand. And how, yeah. how do you effectively harness that and, and foster that culture? I mean, you've been saying it, but so it, it's not top down. And the the little person feels empowered, mm -hmm. like, I got an idea, <laughs> right? Well, it, you, you do two things. Who decides? Teams decide. Teams. No individual in the company should have the authority to tell anyone to keep their mouth shut and do what you're told. Mm. Stop that. Stop that. Because that will kill a company in a rapidly changing world. Sure because the person you're telling to shut up may see something you don't that may be the most important thing or observation that you need to know about. And then the second thing is don't have anybody in your organization having a sense of powerlessness. They won't be engaged. You're not going to get the most out of them. They're likely to leave you. One of the interesting things, our turnover rate was below 3% per year when we use this network approach in our organization. People love working in a structure where they feel my voice matters and I have, I have power to contribute. And you wind up creating a more powerful organization when you can tap into the power of everyone. And when they're working in this team context, they're building shared understanding together so that their decisions are actually better decisions 
than before. That's why the pilots use it in the cockpit. When the team decides rather than a single individual, and this is why they made the change, there were crashes happening because single individuals were making poor decisions. And they had made this change because they had to improve the decision-making in the cockpit. They call their network approach crew resource management, and they learned it from NASA. And why did NASA do it? When your Sitzen Laban, if you will, is the great unknown, you better be really good at co- uncovering what you don't know you don't know, because that is where you're working. Oh, boy. You know, th- this needs to go viral, really, Rod. Th- and your podcast, your, you know, nobody is smarter than everybody. Your book, what right. you talk about, and that is such a level set on I mean, that would fit so many different, that could cure so many things that would create communication again. What happened to our communication? We can't even talk to each other anymore. Well, we're at a bad point now because one of the worst things you can do to kill off collective intelligence is censorship. Yeah. And in all my life, I have never seen censorship at the level we do. And censorship is the legitimate authority to tell people, shut up and keep your mouth shut. I believe that one of the most mismanaged, if the most mismanaged circumstance that I've ever seen in my lifetime was how our government handled the pandemic in COVID-19. It was a top-down hierarchical structure where lots of people, especially frontline doctors, were told, keep your mouth shut, do what you're told. And I think this could have been managed much, much better if we had acknowledged the wisdom of no one smarter than everyone, combined the knowledge of public health experts, of, of frontline doctors, of pharmaceutical companies, of economists, okay, yeah. of sociologists, psychologists, okay, this we didn't have we didn't have an infectious disease problem. We had a social system crisis. That's right, and we should have approached it holistically, tapped into the collective knowledge of of lots of experts, and this would have been managed better. Unfortunately, I think we will be dealing with the consequences of this poor management for quite some time to come. I totally agree with you, Rod. And this, to me, is like a cancer that has actually gone into so many different levels now. What yeah. Do you see a cure? I mean, do you see a way to reverse it? Like, I know now it has to go through this process. Is it just it's just going to hold completely die and then be born again or we've got to change our 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 social etiquette, for lack of a better term, to respect all voices. That's right. One of the interesting things, James Sarawaki wrote a book in 2006, I believe, called The Wisdom Crowds. If you want to tap into collective intelligence, four conditions must be present. If any of the four is missing, you can't get it. Number one is diversity of opinion including eccentric ideas, okay? Censorship kills that. Second is independent thinking. Everyone must be free to express their opinion without fear of retaliation. We killed that one. Third is you want people with a lot of local knowledge. Think in the pandemic, we shut up all the frontline doctors who, who were seeing things and experimenting, and we told them, keep your mouth shut. We know the solution in some bureaucratic organization in Washington, D.C., And then the last one is you need an aggregation mechanism. You need some way in which to aggregate all this intelligence in a way that works inside companies. uh, The way you typically do that is what's called dot voting. Okay. People get dots to get all ideas up there. Everybody's voice counts. And it's amazing 
how that aggregation mechanism oftentimes is a pathway to where we need to go. And so Google was an example in its original iteration. Google used collective intelligence to rank the pages for its first decade. It met all four conditions. But then in its second decade, Google became one of the most draconian, top-down hierarchical structures the world has ever seen because it abandoned collective intelligence and it used uh, internal editorial experts to rank the pages consistent with one point of view. And it did not acknowledge other points of view. And it doesn't matter what your point of view is. All points of view must be respected. If you have the aggregation mechanism, you can combine the strengths of ideas in a way you get better solutions than any single person could come up with. Reminds me, the late Peter Drucker said, the purpose of an organization is to combine our strengths so that our weaknesses become insignificant. Mm, That's what you can do with collective intelligence. Collective intelligence. That's, that is so awesome. And it really, it will be the theme as the phoenix arises because it looks like there's a, you know, a falling down of the yeah. old, right? You could say, right? And, and it's in motion and it's, probably been prophesized, you know, for a long time. So it's not a new thing, but there is a resurrection. There is a phoenix or, uh, you know, a way of being that all of this can work together. Collective intelligence, cooperation, um, not top down. It's right now that top down trying to take over the health, the wealth, the whole thing. But it feels like there are people in there that are going, wait, no, I have a voice, right? Well, in the long run, I think the networks will win. And probably the battlefield on which it will be based, and I think the the investors here will be interested in this. Big question is, how are we going to build AI? Will AI be based on the principle of trust authority, in which case we are likely to have the most Bictonian, totalitarian, hierarchical structures the world has ever seen? Or will we build AI so that it is, in effect, a large human brain? pulling together the collective intelligence of all humanity so that we escape the limitations of the single human brain. And through a human machine symbiosis, we have the opportunities to make better decision-making. If people are familiar with the work of Kahneman and Tversky, I think AI gives us the opportunity to do system two thinking, which they call slow thinking at system one speeds. And system two thinking is more rational than system one thinking. Most hierarchies are just magnifying the system one thinking. That's why unconscious biases are are screwing up with the decisions. System two thinking is better for making decisions, but it's been slow because it's methodical. But what the computer brings to the table is the ability to do uh, methodological tasks at incredible speeds. And if that is made available to us, and if we build AI in a way that privacy is, is maintained, that individuals can own their own data because data is the economic asset of the future, and we build that new economic systems, there will be great opportunities for growth. And I think in the end, it is that type of system that's going to win out rather than uh, the Chinese Communist Party's preference to build the most draconian system that can if you will, control all its citizens. Well, that's so. very promising to hear your positive view on that, for sure. It, and it is, it's so pivotal. Like, my dad was born in 1919, and he went yeah. to Caltech, and Einstein was one of his teachers. And 
So he was a genius. And wow. yeah. he was working right at the pivotal, you know, pivotal point with the atomic nuclear. He was non-destructive nuclear. And yeah. he was there when that was changing hands, you could say. So something that could be like he invented a, a fuel rod that would a nuclear fuel rod that would propel, you know, rockets and all kinds of cool yes. things that were yes. clean and non-destructive. And then that other force came in and used it for bad things. Right. Yeah. So same with the AI or same with whatever we're given. Yeah. We can use it for, for humanity, for good, or the other we already know. And people get that choice. But for right now, what advice for the, an aspiring business leader and folks that want to create that innovation and that collective mm -hmm. right culture? What would you say? Organize your organization as a collection of teams. Again, don't let, you know, Bill Gore, when he set up W.O. Gore and Associates in 1958, his guiding principle is no single person in this company will have the authority to kill a good idea, keep a bad idea alive. Mm -hmm. If you take away the ability for people to make unilateral decisions, if nobody can tell any other people you keep your mouth shut, then, but you let these decisions be made by teams. You, you tell them they have to work within market time context, and they will. You will see decision-making improve in your organization. And if you do that, you'll have the capability to adapt and to adapt uh, well to the market. That's inspiring, Rod, and, and encouraging for everybody because there is, you could say, hope for how all this can come together. And everybody needs to be on the lookout. Tell them when and, and how to get in contact with you and when your book comes out. Sure. Well, I have a website and it's rodcollins.net. And uh, I have a column on Substack called Thinking Differently. Mm. So if uh, if people are interested, I, I do. Uh, I generally put something out there once a month. These tend to be more thoughtful type pieces. I'm really more interested in the macro uh, structures and understanding those. And so uh, that's where people and uh, they can be on the lookout later this year for this book. Nobody is smarter than everybody. All right. Well, we're, we'll be looking forward and we'll look forward to have you come back and tell us some more. It's been really enlightening talking to you and, and encouraging. I've never heard it delineated with such clarity to hear how you've made it work very successfully. I really appreciate that. Rod, it's been a complete honor to have you as my guest. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be with you, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's so much to learn about healthy money. I hope today's discussion brings you one step closer to securing and protecting your future. So you can get started on the right foot, go to meetwithchrismiller.com and schedule your free financial fitness strategy session. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to Money 911 so you don't miss our next episode, which includes health, wealth, and peace of mind.